Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. Favorite home of Toronto, Canada's largest city, Niagara Falls, thought to be one of the world's most magnificent waterfalls, and most recently, the coronavirus. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Hedry. I'm Alvin Tejo. How do we feel about that intro? Are we... There's... I feel like it's you missed the Algonquins and, you know, the Capital Region. There's so many more things to talk about out there. We're I think it's also the for... nicest waterfall in the world, not one of. What's a nicer waterfall? Come on. Victoria Falls, maybe. <laughs> well, today on the pod, we actually prepared a lot more on the federal budget and the child childcare components we talked about last week. So we will be revisiting the federal budget a little bit. But first, it has been another devastating week of the pandemic with now over 850 patients in the ICU across the province. I think that was up to 860, almost 870 today. So not great. But on the brighter side, case counts dipped below 4,000 for the first time this weekend. And it's also been another weird week of politics in the province with a many days long disappearance from the public eye from the premier after he was exposed to a case, then coming out with a tearful apology to now maybe be considering something like paid sick leave. So we'll be talking about all of that. Sticking around though, because later in the pod, we're going to be talking to Jason Toe and Deanna Grimaldas from the Coalition for Alternatives to Streaming and Education, or CASE, to talk about Ontario's plan to de-stream grade nine. So really exciting stuff. But we're going to start with the pandemic and the, the conversation around paid sick benefits. And to do that, we are so excited to welcome Kareem Bardisi, uh, back to Ontario Loud, a uh, friend of the pod. I think this is your second time on here. But for folks listening, if you don't know Kareem, he was former deputy principal secretary to Kathleen Wynne, executive director of policy to both premiers Wynne and McGinty. He is also a lecturer and executive director of the Leadership Lab at Ryerson University. Kareem, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. So uh, listeners, if you haven't read it yet, Kareem has a column out in the Star this week, giving conservatives a few ideas on how they could pursue paid sick leave without, I guess, not being conservatives anymore. So Kareem, uh, in the spirit of this being exam season, I think the important question is, why are you giving them the answers, man? Well, ordinarily in exam season, if the student hasn't done the work, (laughs) you usually give them a couple options. You say, look, just do the best you can or... You know, I'll give you an extension and you can turn in the work a bit later. Time for extensions on this is well past the deadline. And unfortunately, this isn't a, this isn't a, an assignment that's being given to a professor. This is an assignment we gave the government and uh, they've been sitting on the, uh, on the question for quite a while now. And it's up to them to start uh, coming up with some answers and it's answers that have been long time waiting. And it's not just workers. It's not just employers. It's, it's the entire province. And what are some answers that, that might resonate with them? try to help them think through the the problem and actually maybe uh, if they haven't started to work on it yet, maybe help kickstart them towards a solution. And I I think picking up on that, but given that this government has faced just increasing calls to look at this and bin resistance, I, it was really almost shocking to see, I think the apology last week and then Christine Elliott saying that the Ford government will be looking to fill in the gaps of the federal paid sick program. I've noticed on Twitter that this has prompted a whole bunch of hope, potentially dangerous hope that they're actually going to do paid sick leave. I'm wondering what we think they are actually going to do, given sort of how they've acted so far. And what do we think they should do? And Kareem, you had some specific thoughts on on this that you I'm wondering if you can share with us. Yeah, so there's some ways to fill the gaps. One of the big problems with the federal program is that it takes too long to apply for it and to get the money back through the Canada Sickness Recovery Benefit. So one of the ideas was help support employers to front the cash. And then, you know, you could send the bill to Ottawa for that. If, if you want to get political about it, if you want to say that this isn't our problem, it's something that Ottawa should have done better. Then the province can front the cash to employers in the various systems, including through the employer health tax system, through the grants that they already provide to a bunch of small businesses that they've already identified as small businesses in, as being in need. So front them some additional cash for those workers, let those workers take that sick leave right away and uh, bridge their income right away rather than having to wait for that income and send the bill to Ottawa if they want. That's one idea. I think the bigger piece is here, we, we worked in government and uh, some of the folks on, uh, listening to the pod have some familiarity with where, where, how government works. If you don't ask the question, how do we do this? You're not going to get the answer. I'm guessing that within the bowels of government, there are people who have started to think about what the answers might be. But you got to get a minister, you got to get the political people to actually ask the question to, to pull out the answers. Yeah. If we were... 
advising them as to what they should do right now. I'm wondering what we would advise them to do. Clearly, they have viewed this through a political lens so far, to your point, where they haven't even wanted to ask the question. They haven't engaged with the issue. They have, I think, sort of deflected the question of paid sick throughout the whole pandemic. And even uh, as recently as last week, there was an interview that came out with a senior for government official that said they still don't see a need to move quickly on it. And so, you know, if we were the paid consulting group of of this, what do we think they should be doing? Well, uh, maybe I'll just jump in here. I think they clearly have convinced themselves this isn't necessary. They point to the fact that most other provinces outside of Quebec and PEI don't have paid sick leave. But I think that kind of willfully ignores the context of A, Ontario had two days taken away by them, and B, that therefore shaped the public discourse around it. And so the heat is higher here because they did something to actively take it away, right? And so, and if that means that people are more confused here in Ontario about whether there is a paid sick leave program from the feds like they have to own that because they did the thing that confused the people right and so like they're wishing for a world that didn't really exist ever and so you know like because i've there's chatter about like you know bc governed by an ndp government also you know has the same same lack of paid sick leave but i i just think the context is totally different because they took it away for you know when the win government brought it in and so in terms of what they should do, I think they need to bring back an employer-mediated paid sick leave such that, you know, your paycheck is not disrupted for, you know, at least 10 days because that's how long people say you have to stay home plus the weekends. And as Kareem said, it will cost money, but keep pay it back to employers, maybe not every employer, maybe not the largest employers. I'm not sure, you know, Amazon and Rogers need it. But then to Kareem's point... If you want to make it political, say, you know, tell the feds to wind down their program if they or, or, you know, because demand will have shrunk so much and see if the feds will cost share it or whatever. But this is also like we're in the home stretch for this thing. There's only a few months left of this lockdown and, you know, pandemic. Most of the economy is shut down. So like the number of employees that could possibly even take this up is not that huge. Like whatever the cost, it will be worth it to them both in terms of impact, but also politically, they have to get this thing off their neck because, you know, it's the number one thing people are saying back to them every time they try to do something that the population doesn't like and because it's an easy thing to point to that they haven't yet done. There's an alternative. If they really don't like the paid sick leave narrative, they could redefine it and say, well, we're going to protect the workplaces where the outbreaks are happening, rapid testing to those workplaces, whether the employers want it or not. We're going to bring the vaccinations to those workplaces, whether the employers want it or not. Keep in mind, asymptomatic spread is still a really big factor. So paid sick leave isn't even enough. As an important as a policy item it is, it's still not enough. And so if they wanted to redefine it, and if they wanted to show that they were on the side of all those uh, logistics, transportation, care-giving workers in, let's say, Peel region and York region, and Durham region, where the, their political base is is quite strong at the moment, then redefine it. Just say, we're going to protect these workplaces, and we're going to be strong with these employers, and we're going to insist that they have safe workplaces. That would be an alternative. Well, and I think you build on that narrative and say, you know, as the Ford government, we're doing everything we can to support these businesses. We want to keep them open. So, you know, we'll retarget vaccine distribution and you know, on the paid sick days, we want to make sure that these places can stay open and we're filling in the gap. And that's the language they've been using to try and still put this on the federal government for not providing enough, despite them taking away the days in the first place. But I think they can, in theory, win that argument if they come out strong enough with a temporary system and say, we're not still in favor of this universally, but we're in favor of this as a COVID uh, relief measure. And so we're going to put a time limit on this for when we get to a certain vaccination rate or a certain infection rate on COVID throughout Ontario or something like that. And then so they can kind of save face, which I think they're obviously going to do. My concern is, are they going to have a robust enough plan in the first place to actually have uh, a real impact on infection numbers? Yeah. 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 That's been my biggest question of the whole thing is like, why not? Why don't they just 
tie something to the emergency declaration. They've already done that. It is a regular tool with this, you know, time limited supports that scale. Like, you know, we all had to navigate the different levels of restrictions that are when you're in red or green or blue, like why not have your rights as an employee to take time off work and then benefit scale to those things. And you could target it. You could, you know, you don't need to work out the details of how you are supporting businesses to put the measure in place. And that's, I think, the thing that I've always wondered about this. And this is still the single biggest thing that people are criticizing the Ford government over in terms of their handling of the pandemic. I mean, I think there's a lot more to criticize them on, especially around the vaccine rollout and how certain regions are you know, getting more than they should necessarily get, how Peel is still way under in terms of numbers, vaccinations available to them. But politically speaking, I don't see, and I said this last week, I don't see why they don't try to bury this particular criticism with a robust solution right now, because people are going to forget the nuances and details of every week of negative news within a few months after the pandemic really passes by. And if they don't move quickly on or robustly enough on this, I feel like they might not get the benefit of the post-pandemic glow that governments will have because people will sort of pin that to potentially the federal government for getting vaccines and doing everything they could and sort of Ford being an impediment to to those outcomes. Yeah, that's the risk for sure is that people remember you as like a junior partner. But, what you know, listening to Ford's press conference... I think it's pretty clear that's not at least where they are going, or at least where they were going as of Thursday. Like, he kept referencing two to three days as the problem. Like, you know, the fact that short durations you can't apply to the federal program, and it it takes a while to get the money. But it's pretty clear they're talking about bridging to the federal program, not replacing it. And so I think there's a high probability that whenever they roll out, people are still pissed and underwhelmed about and this narrative keeps going yeah which is yeah 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 no for sure i i don't get it but we have a they have a column that they can reference from cream bar dc in the toronto star (laughs) giving them all kinds of great ideas pcs who listen to this highly recommend reading it i know you are you're many this is a feel-good listen for you so actually that's a great segue sam to the press conference itself because that was i think a very interesting bit of politicking on the ford government so first of all let's take a quick listen to the apology itself healthcare workers being pushed to the absolute limit, working to save lives. I want you to know that I hear you. I understand you're going through. I understand your frustration. I'm sorry we acted uh, too quick on on the on the uh, measures. All I hear is limit mobility, limit mobility, and uh, we we uh, move too quick. But any time. You know, if I make a mistake, I correct it immediately, which we did on the weekend. And again, when it comes to playgrounds, you know, the people were telling me limit the mobility. And uh, we we corrected that. I've never, never locked down the parks. The parks have always been open. Uh, Each public health unit, they, they, if they want to lock down the the parks or if they want to, you know, close things, that's, uh, that's their choice, but I think we've done the the right decision. And again, the reason I, I'm here and I'm apologizing because we we moved too quick. So my first question about this comes from avid Ontario loud listener Justin Bieber. Is it too late now to say sorry? Or more seriously, what do we make of the politics and the strategy behind an apology like this? What happened leading up to it? They I I they rarely happen, and I think for this government. An apology is very rare. And so do we think it will work? Apologies are political acts. And uh, I strongly recommend to the Ontario Loud listenership, the um, Kathleen Wynne's Air Quotes Media piece that she just posted some maybe at some point over the weekend, a very personal piece around the role of making apologies, taking responsibility, feeling tears and actually crying tears in private or in public. She rightly, and it's a fascinating story, But she also rightly holds herself and any leader to a very high standard. And an apology isn't something you just dash off without consideration of the circumstances of the apology and the actions that you're going to take after the apology. And so an apology that doesn't 
incorporate the real circumstances that led to the apology and then shows you're going to change your behavior. It's not an apology. It was crisis communications, right? Like if you watch that first 90 seconds, it was like textbook scripted to try to, you know, get over this hump. They clearly see that their support is badly bruised, but you know, Ford clearly didn't sit through all of the coaching because the following minutes kind of undid all of the crisis communications work, right? Like the deflection of blame to everybody else talking about that he's the victim here, how hard he's working, you know, undermining several of the things he said when pushed about why he was apologizing, didn't really take ownership over the substance, but that he moved too fast, which like on the list of things that people have grievances with the Ford government. I don't think moving too fast is high on the list. I think it there's a high chance it did more damage than good in, overall. I, I mean, it totally depends on the audience. I definitely saw some people react very positively to the whether or not you want to believe crocodile tears or real tears, that he's genuinely upset about how things have rolled out. But that you, you could also play into the conspiracy theory that somebody was behind the camera at one point and disconnected the feed being like, Premier, you're kind of off base here a little bit and needed a couple of minutes to re-coach him to try and get him back on track because the feed disappeared for a few minutes and uh, no one really knows what happened there and and who was actually there. But, you know, I think most people who've been very upset with his response kind of saw through the emotional piece there. I think maybe it helped reaffirm the base on some level, politically speaking, that he does care and this is the type of person we do want in the leadership role. But I think that's mostly to stop the bleeding and not to actually gain any more support. So first a confession and be that in preparing the clip for this episode was the first time that I watched it in its entirety because I turned it off in frustration the first time I watched it and didn't revisit it until I realized we had to put it on the pod this week. The second is... Like, I thought it actually just revealed everything about Ford's strengths and weaknesses throughout this pandemic. Because mm. the point I turned it off was when he misidentified the problem as moving too fast. I, you know, I think when he was talking, when he was getting emotional, he was talking about the real impacts of the pandemic on people. I think he's been good at communicating with the public in an empathetic way, but he has fallen short throughout the whole thing on understanding what it is to be done with that. And, just kind of leaves me thinking that he doesn't get it still. And the apology did not help me understand that he got it more. So I agree. I'm not sure it was a, a good move, particularly. And the pandemic discussion today with a fascinating article out from Justin Ling last week, interviews a, a senior premier's office staffer who basically said the government is thinking the overall trend lines are looking okay, but they don't feel the need to move too quickly on paid sick days. So i.e., don't expect it in days. You know, there is a decreasing trend line we're seeing. And I'm curious what we think that we're starting to see, fingers crossed, very, very, but if it does turn around and that apocalyptic modeling doesn't show up, do they end up like on some kind of better side of this? Like, does some of this anger and rage and frustration go away? Do they come out in any way vindicated? That's that's making a lot of assumptions. One of the assumptions it makes is that the variants of concern are just as receptive to the vaccine, that the new normal doesn't involve rejection of the vaccine. There's too many things here that the way the future economy is going to be built around uh, a different way people re- relate to real estate There's too many things that are going to be different, even under those rosy assumptions. And those rosy assumptions, I don't think will hold in every case. So I think it's a it's not a good strategy. Own the change that's going to come out of this pandemic. If you failed at managing the pandemic or you're trying to you're trying to let people think that, you know, the pandemic was managed better than some are saying, then at least own the change coming out of it. And I'm not hearing either. I'm not hearing either a stronger defensive posture now or a stronger offensive posture later. That would be maybe my political analysis. I mean, obviously, who knows? We're all speculating. But if this was the first time that his approval rating had dipped, I would feel there would be a higher chance of a bounce back. But remember, pre-pandemic, his approval rating was down to 20%, right? So like the people who switched their minds back, it's now twice, right, that they've flipped on him. And so, you know, fool me once, whatever. But like, you got to wonder... Even if they get back to solid footing, how much of that support will come back? Obviously, it really depends in part on what the liberals and the NDP do. But but I think in you know talking to conservative friends, I think they did some permanent damage last week for sure. 
And my other problem with this, though, Sam, is that like they waited to see what the numbers were going to look like. They waited. They acknowledged. They waited an extra week or two to see how if it was actually going to be as bad as they thought it was going to be. So knowing that they are looking at this tool right now and not considering implementing it right away, they are again knowingly delaying and adding more fuel to the fire of infection rates going to continue going up in these places, right? So they're again going to be held responsible or should be held responsible for the fact that they're not making this decision when they completely have the tools within their back pocket to do so, right? And so whatever, however much longer this goes, they are going to continue and deservedly need to continue to be blamed for having this go on as long as it has. Yeah. So maybe moving us, Akrim, you mentioned a little bit earlier the idea of owning the recovery. And I think that is a good segue into the federal budget, which one can sort of plainly see they're trying to place a stake in in that ground very unsubtly. So we talked about a little bit last week, we mostly focus on child care, but I wanted to go over just a few of the things that are in the budget that we we didn't get to because it, it's it paints a picture of how they are are seeing the next couple months playing out. The first is there's a whole bucket of what I've called COVID stuff. So they are extending all major COVID supports until September. By the way, there was a chart in the budget that said 70% of restaurants and accommodation business, which I think are like hotels, are receive Canada emergency wage subsidy, but also oil and gas and private schools are disproportionate recipients of it, which I'm not sure how I feel about, but there are wheels to go. Rent supports, EI enhancements, all that stuff is going to continue. They are going to introduce a new major hiring benefit, basically for businesses that are on the emergency wage subsidy, giving them an enhanced level of support for bringing workers back on full time, even when revenues start coming back. So it's an interesting piece, basically trying to encourage businesses to hire. They are also uh, a big portion of this is about student financial aid and youth jobs uh, in work integrated learning. They are continuing the enhanced OSAP, including putting limits on you know how much you have to repayment. And they're continuing those for two years up until 2023. So that's like a big, going to be a big financial break for youth. And finally, they have a whole bunch of green incentives. You know, the plan now includes 17 uh, billion that includes green bonds, interest-free loans for home retrofits, lower corporate and small business taxes for zero emission tech manufacturers. So the government throughout the document uses this phrase, finish the fight, which I seem to remember from the Avengers. <laughs> but I'm curious for this sort of suite of supports. And when we think about this in the context of owning the recovery and putting a stake in it, is the federal plan going to do it? Do we up to the task? What stood out to you guys about what they announced? So the, the child care package was really coherent and massive, and it's directed towards a very specific policy objective. On the youth jobs and the green initiatives in particular, I saw lots of stuff, but I didn't see where it all kind of hung together policy-wise. So it seemed like they took a bunch of things that people either thought were good ideas or things that stakeholders had asked for or things that might sound attractive, like a hiring credit, but are sort of less, less uh, on less firm policy footing and just kind of put it all out there. And as part of the work to be done, if they want to finish the fight, they have to define the terms of the fight. And on childcare, they've clearly done that. It's not cleared yet to me on uh, youth jobs, youth economic prosperity, and on climate, both of like which are massive jobs. I think the I think there's going to be a massive reckoning on the youth economic prosperity front unless governments and the private sector come together. But I don't think they've really properly defined it yet policy wise. They've just kind of put all the ideas on the table. And I would add on both the federal government. What I would be looking for from the federal government is actually to put more tension into the system and call on more private sector involvement on both of those files, because those are fundamentally economic recovery files that require private sector involvement, unlike childcare, which has to be government driven. I mean, a lot of the budget was pegged as a election budget. And with the NDP coming out strongly saying they'll support the budget and looking less and less likely that we'll have a spring election or a summer election because of it. I wonder if it'll be in theory, more challenging for the federal liberals to actually now govern and implement a number of these ideas as opposed to just sort of putting it on the wall and seeing what people wanted to support, right? This is going to have to turn into um, not just an election platform, which I think this was built for, but also, you know, ongoing government policy that they're going to have to deliver for a number of years. So I'm not sure, and I'm with Kareem, and then in terms of the, I think they didn't necessarily have a, a narrative that they fully fleshed out yet, other than 
we want to satisfy everyone who supports us and <laughs> put enough money out there to to satisfy what people think are the you know basics that we're going to have to get there. And on childcare, I mean, it's we talked about this last week. It's plenty of money. It's whether or not they can deliver on fifty percent reduction in fees within a year and actually build towards a ten dollar a day plan within five years. I mean, that's incredibly ambitious. And in terms of the student and youth jobs, a lot of it is sort of an extension of what they've been doing already. Right. And that has sort of held the line, I think, for a lot of people in Canada, but it hasn't really expanded or grown in any significant way that we've been able to see yet. So I guess we'll we'll have to see how how much of an impact this has if it, if they actually get to do this for the next six months to a year without an election. I think just maybe an Ontario lens on it. I think the feds continue to, you know, clearly engage in what is traditionally been provincial jurisdiction childcare being obviously the most obvious but you know even the student aid you know youth employment stuff traditionally people have looked to the province first for lots of that so i think it's you know an activist government a progressive government really you know playing with the tension that most of the large provinces are governed by conservatives who are not stepping up in most of these spaces it's i think it's what people want I'm sure it would have been a winning election budget, or at least what the you know the plurality of people want. And then to Alvin's point, it'll be interesting how long they can govern now with it and move into implementation because it looks like this will not be a trigger for an election. Yeah, no, and the only thing I, I want to say about it is, in contrast to like looking at child care last week, where I was like, this is this is pretty visionary. This is a new thing. This will fundamentally transform this kind of thing i when i dove into the economic recovery and the climate change pieces of it like they clearly don't have as well defined a vision and i think it will be good like i'm supportive of it but i don't think that it necessarily is like economy shaping in the kind of way that you know i i think maybe some of us were thinking that this budget might do it and when you look at who is Benefiting from the federal supports, I talked a little bit earlier about oil and gas companies and private schools. I'm not entirely sure that Canada's economic future is in the businesses that are being most supported here. And so maybe some of that is helped by the green funds. The student aid stuff appears to be directly aid to students, but I don't really see where Canada is growing in the recovery after this from this budget in a really coherent kind of way. I think it's we've done all this great stuff. We're going to continue doing more stuff like it. And if you like the stuff we've done, vote for us again. I, re- I would love to have seen an early draft of last year's fall economic statement that everyone was seeing or hearing that it was going to be on greed initiatives, right? Like, would it have been twice the money? Would the money that have gone to childcare gone to greed initiatives? That would have been really interesting to see. And obviously, even more transformative if it was uh, a lot more money than the $17 billion that they're already putting in, which I'm not saying is not a lot of money to move the needle on the future province. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Th- this government didn't really lay out an economic vision and had lots of policy ideas that could be representative of a vision. The Ontario budget said, well, we plan to have a vision later. And I think government need to work harder and more co- collaboratively and make some tough choices. I think the, pro- the, the problem with having lots of policy tools and just throwing them all in there is you're not really sure. It's not really strategic. And I think, Chris, you rightly point out that they're going to be shifting away from the resources sector. And there's, if you read the f- federal government's take on it, it's not clear where they think the, the future sources will be, except everything, because <laughs> uh, there's a little bit for everything. And that that's maybe okay politically, but perhaps we need a bit more, again, private sector players at the table kind of telling us and working with us to say, look, this is where the investment opportunity is going to be. Before we leave budget and go to rapid fire, want to take a, get a, some quick takes on taxes because there were a few new taxes proposed on tobacco, vaping, cars, private uh, planes over $100,000, boats over $250,000. So you own a cheap boat. Don't worry. Federal <laughs> aren't coming after you. But you got an expensive boat. But yeah, like, this, I think, stands in contrast to, I think, many on the left, including the NDP, were specifically calling for a wealth tax, the government to sort of put some down. We have on the pod sort of many times suggested that they might want to start talking about taxes 
early and thinking about the politics of that early. They haven't done it here. Is it a missed opportunity? Any quick takes on on, on taxes? Because obviously this level of high spending cannot continue without some kind of revenue discussion. Absolutely missed opportunity. I don't know why they didn't put in more of a trial balloon to get people talking about paying for the pandemic and paying for the recovery. I think there are, you know, fiscally conservative liberal voters who would have liked to have seen either a clearer path of balance or additional revenue tools, because when you cost out all the new program spending, there's no way that you get to anywhere near balance in the years out. So, you know, throw it a trial balloon. We're talking, we're going to think about studying whether or not to increase the GST by the two points that Harper got rid of it years ago, or we want to do something on bringing corporate taxes back to what they were in 2010. I don't know, something along the lines of we're not completely ignoring the revenue side of the equation here, other than a couple of random taxes for people who need to buy quarter million dollar boats. Like, you know what I mean? It just feels like a huge wasted opportunity to have that be part of the discussion. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe they didn't want, maybe we want to give everybody their cake and they can eat it too. And they don't have to think about, you know, exercising it the day after uh, they eat their cake. So, you know, I I think, especially on the wealth tax commission, I don't know, something to figure out how to bridge that gap, because I think it's all on the spending side. And there are going to be people who ask questions about that. A commission, I think, would have been smart politics, actually. Like, I, I, I don't think the public is in the mood right now for the specifics, but I agree on the message. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would scope said commission to be how do we make sure that those who were least impacted, the wealthiest, the privileged, like really create a, a picture that your taxation philosophy is going to be not going after those who have been most impacted, but those who have the most means. And I think that like that, you don't need to be specific. You don't need the wealth tax in this. But I, th- I think you get the NDP voters with that. They put some little markers, but they didn't. They clearly made a political decision not to make a big deal of it. Commission to study revenue tools for the financial sustainability of the province, of the country. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they need they needed to they will continue to need to at the highest level argue that we're all in this together and that we're going to be in all the, all in, in this together and the wealth figures since the pandemic started are a complete refutation of that. Those with wealth have accumulated more wealth. Even if you did nothing, things would get worse. <laughs> compared oh, yeah. to so 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 action is, is called for. I guess I guess the tycoon who's vaping in his Lambro, which is being tugged by an expensive boat, will get taxed a bit more. But this is a far wider spread. And it's far wider spread than just the 0.1%. Actually, I don't think, you know, I I think the NDP can fill their boots with their arguments around the the plutocrats and the millionaires. But we're all in this together. It goes far beyond the the people who are the extremes of wealth. It goes to the professional classes. It goes to people like me who are in a, a very comfortable quote, white collar job that was not affected. Hopefully, I've been doing a good job in building up new leadership requires and leadership lab promo message there. But but the fact is that salaried workers, by and large, were uh, were not affected. And are they all in this together? Have we made an ask of them? We have not. We have not. Yeah. And that was clearly, I think that was probably clearly the worry uh, in that sparking fear amongst those voters. The, the vaping Lambro boat guy probably is not voting liberal anyways <laughs> who knows if he's even or he or she is even a citizen of the country maybe they're <laughs> living in, in bermuda technically but but yeah no interesting piece clearly a discussion that is going to be live in our politics for some time to come because this budget did not create a path forward on it so moving quick to rapid fire to wrap us up today i have two two things important topics for discussion our premier a year into the pandemic did not have a work from home setup until last week and so I like, I just thoughts, comments, feedback, tech setup tips that we might want to give him. Full defense of the premier for his uh, devotion to the BlackBerry, a superior device. He just needs to upgrade to the most recent model, the key two, and uh, whatever key three or key prime will be generated after that. But otherwise, this is something that he should have, someone should have figured out. I mean, my cybersecurity alarm bells are going off on the getting burner blackberries from his favorite store in Mississauga. Those cannot possibly be no. secure still. <laughs> yeah, there were several people who were smart about these things being like, I hope CSIS was like fully briefed on this and he was not getting stuff to it. 
yeah. One, one, yeah, one of the things that drives me crazy is that, like, out of politicians, what I want to see is empathy, like real, genuine empathy around what happens to people that they are governing, right? And the fact that Doug needs to be put in a position where he can live out the experience of working from home and understanding that he gets a paid sick day because he can work from home, like, that's just crazy. Like, he has no ability to connect with people that he does not have a direct line to that he himself is not experiencing right he can't put himself in other people's shoes yeah somebody else on twitter raised the question where has he been doing these zoom fundraisers from which you know could be a party mm. office could be anywhere right but it is it doesn't beg an interesting question doesn't it oh yes i mean having a uh, it also, to me, makes his like his exasperated. It's so easy about the portal, like man, uh, like bullshit. I just it's just messaging. Yeah, like, but I mean, you know, I'm glad he. I mean, if he's using a BlackBerry Classic, he is probably a killer at Snake. He is probably lightning on BBM. You know, any uh, BBM is that even still an app that's supported right now? So, last topic here today: Did anyone watch the Oscars? It's an obligatory question. It's been in all of my small talk today, and my answer has been no. I haven't watched the Oscars. Did you guys watch the Oscars? I watched, I watched the first five minutes, 20, twenty minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I watched five minutes of the opening to see if anything was going to be special about it, but it didn't seem like it. There were no jokes. They just went straight to straight yeah. to the good. I was like, oh, I'm out of here. Yeah, one day I'll get to go see movies again and then I'll watch the Oscars again. <laughs> but also, is this like a yeah. next year, right? Like, it's like the Dodgers winning the World Series. Does it really <laughs> count if most of the movies weren't released last year? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It'll, I think it'll be one for the history books. The one thing I did hear is that Anthony Hopkins, who won Best Actor, I think, was asleep and <laughs> found out in the morning, like, was not woken up for his acceptance speech. He was just was like, congratulations. And he was nominated against Chadwick Boseman, who posthumously, which I was kind of like, that's a little, that's not a good look for the Oscars. And also... Yeah, I didn't watch this year. So that was all I have to say. This is like literally me just regurgitating stuff I read on Twitter <laughs> for on our podcast, which is, you know, how the news should work. So with that, now that we've fully explored Ontario Lad Pop Culture Edition, I'll call it a day, take a quick break and go to the interview with Case. Hey, so before we went to the interview, I just wanted to talk about some of the ways that you can support the pod as a listener. So the first way is to go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and sign up for one of the tiers of support. This is a low monthly amount from $3 to $5 to more if you'd like that helps us do things like pay for our technology costs, our hosting costs, bring on more people to help with graphic design, with communications, with research, uh, and ultimately allows us to do more and dream bigger as a pod. Thank you to those uh, of you who already do support. You've helped make this possible to date. And if you like what you're hearing and you haven't yet, uh, head to patreon.com slash today. You can also head to the iTunes store and leave us a star review and even better, write something in the comments about how you like the pod. This helps us greatly with the iTunes algorithm, which helps the pod generally. Understand times are tough. Uh, if you don't have cash, head to the iTunes store, leave us a review. All right, that's enough housekeeping. On to the interview. All right, I'm so pleased to have two fantastic guests join me today to talk about de-streaming and what it means for Ontario schools and students. Pleased to have with me Deanna Gormaldo, who's the parent lead for the Parent Ambassador Program at the Working Women Community Center, where she facilitates equitable and inclusive involvement of immigrants and parents in their children's education. She's also a research assistant at York University. Welcome, Deanna. Thanks, Sam. And I'm also pleased to have Jason Toe, who's the coordinator of secondary mathematics and academic pathways at the Toronto District School Board, and was also previously a teacher at Westview Centennial Secondary School. Hi, Jason. Hey, Sam. 
and both are active members of the Coalition for Alternatives to Streaming and Education, a diverse group of organizations, parents, students, and educators who share the common goal of effectively ending the practice of academic streaming in Ontario schools. So what do we mean by streaming? Uh, it's the process of dividing students into differentiated groups based on their perceived academic ability or prior achievement. And while that can happen both formally and informally across grade levels, entrance into high school in Ontario marks uh, you know, a more institutional effort to align students with their perceived academic difficulty. So in grade nine, it starts with academic and applied courses. And for students with uh, special needs, there could be locally developed or essential courses. Uh, and so students in the grade nine applied stream face some significant barriers. So one in four do not graduate high school, less than one third uh, transition to college, and only 3% make it to university. Uh, in comparison, those who take academic classes in grade nine, only 5% don't graduate high school, and three in four go on directly to post-secondary education. A disproportionate number of students from low-income families, uh, Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and other racialized communities are also enrolled in applied courses and therefore underrepresented among students who go on to graduate and pursue post-secondary education. Students with special needs similarly affected. Uh, last July, uh, you know, in at the sort of peak of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, Minister Lecce announced Ontario's intention to eliminate academic streaming in grade nine uh, beginning this coming September, though there has yet not yet been much word on implementation plans. Um, so, Deanna, let's start with you. Um, you know, what got you into this work on de-streaming and, and why is it important to you? Thanks, Sam. To be honest, before I started into this uh, work, I wasn't a parent, so I wasn't really aware of the challenges that families face within the education system. And so I started working in the education se sector, and part of the project that I started was the Parent Ambassador Program. And so I started doing research and learning about the challenges that the that families particularly Latinx families were facing. And it was really staggering to me to, to realize the barriers that were uh, putting into students and families that didn't have actually a choice. And so the more I learned, the more uh, passionate I, I, I got and the more involved I, I got. And so that's when I joined the coalition almost six years ago. And at the same time, I was becoming a parent. And I, I, it really, I think for me, it was personal. It became personal, knowing that my kids in four years will be going through those challenges. Because what I learned through the research is that it starts the moment they enter the education system. It starts in kindergarten. And to be thinking of my four-year-old being judged by their abilities really scare me. And I think that that is the reality for Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and all parents who are disrupting the system by sending their kids to school. And so for me, it became something that I will continue fighting and advocating for because it is important and we need to interrupt. We need to end it. It needs to stop. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Jason, I'm curious what has brought you, t I guess, to this work as well. You're with, with TDSB, who is, for those who may not know, a few years ahead of the province. Starting in 2017, they started phasing out applied courses in grades 9 and 10. So so I guess how has that been going, kind of notionally in charge of, of the implementation of that at TDSB? So curious about your own journey to the de-streaming work and, and how it's going at TDSB. So back in 2014, I was part of professional learning for a small number of schools. So we could call it a pilot, so to speak. And after, you know, I was just a classroom teacher. I was, I was teaching math in, in the Jane Finch community in a high school. And I, I saw streaming happen, you know, before my eyes, but I didn't really have the words to describe it. Like I knew that something was going on, but then this 
the the professional learning that I was able to take take you know to be a part of it, it completely opened my eyes. I had no idea about streaming really and its issues and and the 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 problems and the harm that it created until that moment. And then you can't unsee that information, right? All the data that was that you outlined at the beginning was what I learned, and you know immediately we decided that we needed to do something about it and went through a process and did a lot of learning and learning on the job and you know since then been trying to provide as much learning to my colleagues as I can so like you said now that's primarily my job is to provide support and learning for our staff to effectively challenge streaming call it out and change the structures and teach more inclusively and and I would say that you know for for such a really quite a, a monumental change in how we organize and perceive and treat students that I'd say it's going all right so far I, I wouldn't say that you know we, we haven't had hiccups but I think that as a journey because the TDSB has had this luxury so to speak of of being ahead and having the time that we've had to really digest what the data tells us the the role that educators have had in, in being implicated in systemic racism whether they knew it or not the, the time that we've been been given to really come to grips with this has has really like I've seen in the last three or four years quite a lot of change in in teacher perceptions of of streaming and de-streaming uh, I think that there was you know some opposition you know, quite a bit actually I would say at the beginning of the process I'm I'm hearing less and less of that now and more in terms of well what do I do now so I, I understand the why I get it now I just need some of the the tools that that I would need to make a de-streamed class uh, successful so you know, I, I don't envy boards that have all of a sudden like are just starting these discussions right now. They they don't have that luxury of of going really deep and and taking their time to learn before they implement. They're going to have to do both at the same time. But you know, I think that with like you said, the Black Lives Matter movement, this new more the the, the greater social awareness of racial inequity. I think has set the table for everybody to kind of be at a stage where they're able to learn and have some more, you know, context than I did when I started this five, six years ago. Yeah. Wow. So I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people worried that, you know, in other parts of Ontario in rural communities, the table has not been set necessarily in the same way. A lot of the activism is rooted in, in Toronto. Are, are you folks worried about that? And, you know, how, how do you change culture in the way that you think you've, you know, started observing at TDSB? For me, I, I think that how, like how you mentioned streaming and how it, you know, how it marginalizes groups along many different lines, right? It's racially, socioeconomically, in terms of ability, disability, those things, you know, a lot of those things can apply in rural Ontario just as much as they do in, in the GTA. We can look at Indigenous communities. We can look at students with uh, special needs. You know, streaming can be, and the issue of streaming can be contextualized locally. You just have to look hard enough to know. And part of it is that there's just not necessarily the abundance of data that we have in the TDSB that really sheds light on this. But we know that the data that's in Toronto is likely very strongly a mirror in other urban settings. But there is, I would, I would say you cannot find a jurisdiction that, that streams or tracks like Ontario does and not see inequities happen as a result of them. Like you would be a unicorn. Like if a practice like this wasn't harming your community, your underserved communities, no matter where you are. So I think I think people just need to have that information within their local communities and really come to terms to understand, well, how does this streaming practice look like and affect my community in Sudbury or Timmins or wherever you are? Right. And, and I think many people don't realize this, but Ontario is in fact the only province in Canada that starts streaming in grade nine, most start in grade 10. Deanna, do you want to jump in on that question about, you know, how, how to change 
culture across Ontario? I think the moment we are able to to pass the message on that the awareness that needs to be created it comes from the systematic problems that exist within the education system, then we're more able to to have a bigger conversation that will require improvements in teacher college in how that teaching is actually happening. Because if we are not able to have teachers who have uh, a better understanding of what working for an, an anti-oppression anti framework and an anti-racist approach. And so then we're not going to be able to create a, a real shift. And so, and I know the challenge for boards that are no as diverse as, as, as Toronto, there are, as Jason mentioned, there are socioeconomic challenge that were designed, the way in, in which the education system was designed was to fulfill an economic need. And so understanding that if we don't ch change the systemic root cause of streaming, then the outcomes are going to be the same for, for anyone. My worry really is what's going to be the new streaming because we, we, are, we are the streaming one grade and there is still other subjects that will really have a significant impact for employment opportunities, but also for accessing post-secondary education. So I do worry that if there is, if, 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 if we think about the long-term impact that this can have, in order for us to de-stream, it needs to be really thought out through. And I don't, and I, and I know that the TDSB has done a lot of the homework before getting into this, but that's not the advantage that other boards have. So the ministry really need to look in how they're going to better support those boards. And to really make it a K to 12 approach, right? It's a great point about going into like pre-service teachers as well. Like this, this is very, like, I mean, maybe I'm a little biased here, but I think that you know, disrupting streaming from a K to 12 perspective is the most anti-oppressive act that school boards and jurisdictions can make at this point. We, we, we know like exactly like Deanna said, that there are root causes of streaming that we also have to deal with, with, you know, in terms of, you know, in addition to personal biases that, you know, if, if left unchecked in a de-stream setting can just find ways to replicate streaming, right. In other, in other ways, if you don't challenge those, those root biases that people uh, have as well. So there's, there's a ton of work that needs to be done. And right now the, the dialogue is grade nine and grade nine math, even more specifically, right, Deanna? And, you know, this, this conversation has to be moved very quickly to extend all the way from when kids enter school buildings when they're three or four years old and and expand it the other way too for when they when they exit a secondary school we need to talk about access to post-secondary this isn't just about graduating students we need to make sure that they enter post-secondary we know that 70 percent of jobs moving forward are going to require some sort of post-secondary education so graduating is not enough it's about getting them into a college or a university and making sure that they're successful at that end too Right. Maybe just building on that, one of the perceived criticisms of of this movement that we hear is from, you know, the skilled trades, the hands-on learning, that the applied stream is really necessary for those kids that aren't going to make it to university or don't want to go to university. What do you make of that, of that criticism, either of you? Well, I'll, I'll take it on first. Yeah, I think that, you know, what we're hoping for is to create better learning environments for people. We know that when you have two separate and seemingly equal tracks of education, that one is actually more preferred than another. And we, all, we only need to look at the different types of streaming that's happened before. Most of the, you know, most of people that, you know, listen are probably products of the advanced general and basic streams of it that took place in Ontario before what happened now. And the the different outcomes were exactly the same. The, the kids that were coming from advanced courses were going into university and graduating and the kids that were taking general and basic weren't like the 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 idea, though, is that 
like the kids in the general and basic, they weren't being served well because when you put students together, congregate them together, and they have poor self-concepts of themselves as as learners we've put them in there like we you know and and kids know why they're not with those other students and that just is a recipe for poor learning and you know different outcomes like we want we want everybody even students that do want to go into a skilled trade to be in like a really rich learning environment and if we don't reorganize schools and schooling then that's just that's continually not going to happen for for any for especially for students that are thinking about going into colleges or skilled trades i mean for me the to be honest the 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 sad part of of this realization of understanding the systemic damage in which the education was designed it really I, i i i'm an immigrant so i came i was educated in a much different education system where my my teachers were always have me or have any other student as the best interest. And you trust that the education system will make the best decisions for you. So in in my country, of the education is designed the other way around. So children go to academic, the stream, there's no streams because there's no such a thing as streaming. So everybody has the same opportunity to learn. And if you want to get into the trade business, you actually have to go after high school and you have to have a different interest and you actually have to have other kind of opportunities. And it's designed in a way that it kind of gives you options of you can go to university, you can go to whatever, whatever choice you make, you're making it, but the school is not making it for you. So the problem that we have with the education system in Ontario is that we're giving those caring adults, and I'm putting caring adults in apostrophe just because I, I don't see that. And, and, and the problem with that, and I go back again to the, to the teaching, is that there isn't enough representation of teachers of color. 84% of our teachers are white teachers. And that is a problem. That is a problem for racialized students that don't see themselves in the education system. That is a problem for black boys who don't see black male teaching them. Right. And so when you don't have when you don't see that as an opportunity, how are we shifting a, a system that has existed for generations and generation? And, and sadly, this what is doing is reproducing intergenerational poverty. Right. And so we see it over and over and we hear the stories. Grandparents of black boys now are dealing with the same problems that they de- they they face themselves. So I, I do worry if we think about how we can shift the narrative of the apprenticeship programs being something as, a, as an, an opportunity, even if you have academic, like how can, how can not be like, and, and, and that's the other need that exists that you, you need to be, you, you can be in apply and you can apply for the trades. That's not always the case for some trades. You need certain credits mm-hmm. and that might not be apply, right? That might be academic. And if we only changing that a great, at grade nine. So what's going to happen in grade 10? How are you going to earn those credits back? Right? And we asking 13 year old to be making these decisions again. And even 14 is still too young. We've, we've always targeted apprenticeship programs to struggling students in applied and locally developed courses. You know what? And, And there's always been this argument about like, why is there this shortage of people that want to go into skilled trades? I think part of the issue is that there's that, there's that stigma that, that this is not meant for, uh, successful students. Well, I, I would actually hope that maybe a great byproduct of de-streaming is that apprenticeships are, are just advertised to all students, you know, in, a, in an inclusive program. So you might get those students that they are getting 80s and 90s in classes and thinking about, you know, a, a very lucrative skilled trades career, you know, who knows? I would be very interested to see how this may impact the supply of, of labor in, in certain skills. That's great. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have to leave it there, but this has been a really, really interesting discussion. We really just, uh, you know, scratched the surface. If people want to learn more about uh, the coalition of which Jason and Deanna and, and myself are a part, you can go to endstreaming.org uh, and learn more. Thanks, Jason and Deanna, very much for the time. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. 
And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Ontario Loud. We are a podcast about politics and public policy focused on Ontario. Ontario Loud is hosted by Grumatawar Kapoor, Alvin Tejo, and Sam Andrew. I'm Chris Martin. We are supported by amazing volunteers uh, and Harmon Mundy, who helps us do research and communications. He also sends us lots of funny memes in the group chat. Fahim Khan helps us do communications and social media. And we are so grateful for their support. If you like what you heard, go to iTunes and give us a review or head to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud and support the pod for less than the price of a cup of coffee each month. It's easy. It helps us support our costs like hosting and technology and helps us keep doing this thing for the long term. If you have any thoughts on what you heard, get at us on Twitter at Ontario Loud, on Instagram at Ontario Loud Podcast, or Ontario Loud Mail at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Last but certainly not least, Ontario Lab is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabeg, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat people, and many nations. Toronto is governed by Treaty 13, and it is important to acknowledge that too often in our settler colonial society, we make conscious and unconscious attempts to erase uh, this history, and we must do everything we can to fight that. It's about more than a land acknowledgement, but uh, we want to end the pod with one. And we stand in solidarity with the First Nations uh, in our community and acknowledge that we have so much more to do and pledge to do what we can on this podcast to uh, further their cause. That's it for us, and we will see you next week.